Today we are continuing in our series of messages entitled The Face of Jesus Christ. It's taken from 2 Corinthians, where the Bible says the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is found in the face of Jesus Christ. I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 18, verse 28. It's 1247 in your pew Bible. We'll be staying for the majority of our time in John's aspect of this interchange between Pilate and Jesus. Incidentally, all three, all four of the Gospels talk about Pilate and Jesus, but John's Gospel is unique in that it gives us the most dialogue. So I'd like to invite you to turn with me there. I'll have some scriptures on the screen as well so you can follow along in your Bibles and on the screen. The Bible tells us, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, <clears throat> and it was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, that they might eat the Passover. This is so ironic, isn't it? That these religious leaders are about to murder the Son of God, the Passover lamb, and they're like, uh-uh-uh, oh, 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 we can't go into the house of a Gentile because we might become ceremonial. Lee defiled. This is a, a little bit of a twisted priorities here. They're killing the Son of God, and they're like, we don't want to go into your house, Pilate, because you're a Gentile, and we might defile ourselves. This is an interesting situation. Why did they have to go to the house of Pilate, the praetorium? The reason was the Jews were given jurisdiction over spiritual matters, but when it came to the death penalty, they still needed the Roman officials' stamp of approval. They had convicted Jesus on the grounds, remember last week, of blasphemy, and now they were going to Pilate. Now, Pilate could care less about the conviction of blasphemy. All he cares about is a civil ins insurrection. And it was early in the morning when they came. Now, Pilate is an interesting fellow. This is an inscription that was found in the 1960s. Many higher critics did not believe that Pontius Pilate, the name, was a legitimate name that was ever used, and this was an archaeological discovery, the only inscription, incidentally, with the phrase Pontius Pilate. It essentially validated the biblical description of Pilate, and you'll be interested to also know that every archaeological discovery that has been made has never contradicted the Holy Scriptures. Can you say amen? It has become so reliable that when archaeologists go to do a dig overseas, you know what they bring with them? They bring a map and they bring a Bible because the Bible has been historically accurate when it comes to archaeology. Pontius Pilate was mentioned another time earlier to this incident in Luke chapter 13. The Bible says, Pilate mingled the blood of the Galileans with their sacrifices. It seems to indicate that Pilate had murdered them while they were giving sacrifice. He was a weak, mean man that was not afraid to use lethal force. Philo and Josephus also record some incidents about, about Pilate. He did not get along with the Jews, and it was a very interesting, tenuous relationship. We see that the Bible says in John chapter 19, verse 29, 18, verse 29, Pilate then went out to them, Remember, the Jews did not want to come in because they did not want to be defiled, so Pilate had to go out to them. And he said, what accusations do you bring against this man? Remember, last week we said that 
They had pinned the accusation of blasphemy, a religious conviction. And you'll see the interesting response by the Pharisees. He asked, what conviction do you have? In verse 30, they answered and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. That's a very evasive answer, isn't it? They're not answering the question. In other words, they're just saying, trust us. We don't want to give you a legitimate conviction as to what happened. Pilate then goes into the praetorium where Jesus is and starts dialoguing with Jesus. And for the sake of time, we're not going to read through the entire chapter of John chapter 19 and 18. And you will thank me for it later. Incidentally, this was a very difficult passage to study because it was so large, I had to really hone in on a certain section. Pilate is in a quandary because even though Pilate is not afraid to use lethal force when necessary, Pilate does have an element of morality about him, and he looks at the face of Jesus, and he notices very quickly that in the countenance of Jesus, there's a a difference between him and the hardened criminals. Pilate has been interacting with criminals for a very long time, and he looks at the face of Jesus, and he sees innocence, and he dialogues with him, and three times, not once, not twice, but three times, In Luke's account, Pilate says some very interesting words. I want you to notice it there very quickly on the screen. Pilate turned to the leading priests and the crowd and said, I want you to notice the nuances of what he's saying here. He said, I find nothing wrong with this man. He has cross-examined Jesus, and he says, look, I can't find anything wrong with him. Verse 14 of that same chapter. You brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. I have examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence and find him what? And find him innocent. Again, in that same chapter, this is driving home a point in the mind of Luke. Why? What crime has he committed? I have found no reason to sentence him to death. I would like to contend here this morning that Pilate not only did not believe that Jesus was guilty of a crime worthy of death, furthermore, I believe that in Pilate's heart of hearts, he wanted to release Jesus. The reason I believe this is the Bible explicitly says in that same chapter, Luke 23, 21, Pilate argued with them. Look at this. Pilate comes out and he starts arguing with the religious leaders. This is a pagan man, a non-believing pagan king, the prefect of Judea, the governor that was assigned to that region by uh, Caesar. He goes out and starts arguing with them, and he says that he wanted to release Jesus. That was the reason why he would argue with them. And in John chapter 19, verse 12, the Bible tells us that Jesus was attempted to be set free by Pilate. It says Pilate tried to set Jesus free. He's in a quandary because he knows that Jesus is innocent and he starts to go out there to engage the mob trying to convince them that this man is innocent. Furthermore, he's trying to convince them that releasing him would be the best option. There was a critical moment in which He compromised his position that I believe led him down the path of ultimately washing his hands and Jesus being crucified. And this compromise began in Luke chapter 23, verse 20. How could it be that someone that was so convicted that Jesus is innocent, furthermore is arguing in his favor, trying to release him, could 
later on, wash his hands, and Jesus would be crucified. I believe it began right here at this critical point. Pilate argued with them because he wanted to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he demanded, why, what crime has he committed? And I want you to notice this part that I've highlighted. I have found no reason to sentence him to death. No reason to sentence him to death. The next sentence seems contradictory to what he has just said. I have found no reason to sentence him to death, so I will have him flogged, and then I will release him. I don't know why he did this. I don't know why he said this. Why are you going to whip an innocent man? But perhaps in his mind, he thought that they would have mercy on him, or it was to appease the crowd that was beginning to get very, very angry. He thought, perhaps I could do this. I'll give in a little bit, and I will perhaps quell the, the mob that is gathering around. This is a, an interesting parallel or these sentences are placed specifically next to each other, it shows you the illogical framework that Pilate is working from. He says, look, I found no reason to sentence him, but I will flog him and I will release him. This is a picture of the Roman whip that archaeologists believe that they used during the first century. It was a short handle, like you see there on the screen, those things that are coming down are made of leather, and you see those little kind of balls on the end of that leather. That was a part of the whip where they would tie uh, lead balls to the end of the leather, and then they would also take sharp pieces of sheep bone and place it on there as well. The prisoner would be uh, tied to a post, his back would be exposed, and it usually took two uh, Roman soldiers to take turns on the prisoner. I'm not going to go into the details of what's happening, but medical examiners looking at the type of lacerations that would happen on the back of an individual that was going through something like this have said that it was designed to inflict as much pain as was humanly possible. The Jews would only whip them 39 times because they believed that the 40th time would actually kill the individual. So they would bring them to the very edge of death and then stop right there. This is a quote from Dr. William Edwards. He's a physician at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. And he probably is a Christian and he was curious as to what happened during the flogging period I'm not going to belabor this, but I just want us to get a grasp as to what was happening to Jesus at this point. It's in the Bible, and it's there for a reason. As the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victim's back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions, that means internal bleeding, and the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. Then as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. 
If you remember in our previous presentations, Jesus has spent the entire night praying in Gethsemane. He's then taken to Pilate's judgment hall. He's very weak. And you remember after this that Jesus is carrying the cross up to Golgotha and he faints. And the reason many people believe that happened is because he had lost so much blood in the flogging that had taken place just prior to this. The Son of God is experiencing excruciating pain in this moment. And uh, this is an artist's depiction of what the scourging would look like. And Jesus comes back into the praetorium and it was customary after that flogging that the soldiers would start to mock the victim. The soldiers assigned the governor, took Jesus into the governor's palace and took the entire brigade together. I have it from the New Living Translation. And for fun, they stripped him, dressed him in a red robe. They plaited a crown from the branches of a thorn bush and set it on his head. They put a stick in his right hand for a scepter. Then they knelt before him in mocking reverence. Bravo, king of the Jews, they said. Bravo. Then they spit on him and hit him on the head with the stick. And when they had their fun, they took off the robe and put his clothes back on him. And then Jesus is led back in the view of that angry mob and those famous words from the mouth of Pilate, Behold the man. Behold the man. There's a part that I want to focus on that literally lifted itself, it seems, off the page and was drawn to my attention. Pilate hears a saying among the people that he claimed that he was the son of God and he becomes very afraid that he might be dealing with someone that is divine just from the countenance of Jesus himself. I believe that he could see that there was something different about this man. The Bible says in John chapter 19 that he was very afraid. He goes back to Jesus and he asks this interesting question. He says, where are you from? Where are you from? Jesus doesn't answer him and then Pilate turns to him almost a little bit irritated, I believe, and says, don't you know that I have the power to release you or to crucify you? At this moment, Jesus responds, and I have the words here on the screen. There's so much here, but I want to hone in on one portion. John chapter 19, verse 11. First, these are the first words to Pilate after the flogging. Now, Jesus has just been whipped within an inch of his life, he is fainting in a lot of pain. And Jesus answers Pilate and says, you would have no power over me if it was not given to you from above. In other words, the power that you have right now is delegated authority. Then the next verse is fascinating. The next part of that verse. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. The one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. What is Jesus trying to say here? Jesus is essentially saying that, look, there's someone that's even more guilty than you. Now, this is an interesting way of phrasing it, 
But I want you to remember that Jesus has just been flogged. He's looking at the man that believes that he's innocent, but because he's weak, he had him go through this excruciating flogging. And he looks at him, and the first words that come out of his mouth is, therefore the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. We'll come back to this in a moment, but I want to ask you the question, uh, what is your natural response when you've been hurt by someone? I think all of us in this room have been hurt at one time or another, whether intentionally or accidentally. You ever hold a, a nail for someone while they're driving a hammer uh, or the nail into something and, and they miss and they hit your finger? What, what's your response? It's like, ah, you know, don't you know how to use a hammer, you clumsy? You know, you, you get upset even when it's an accident. But what if someone hurts you intentionally? What's your natural response? I think the natural, visceral, understandable response when someone intentionally hurts you, I pray that it's not physical, but perhaps some of you have endured physical abuse or emotional abuse. And when someone hurts you emotionally or physically, the natural response is is what? Anger? Resentment? Vindication, retribution, these are all natural things, or or alienation, or stonewalling. These are all things that happen when someone hurts us, when someone wounds us. The natural physical, psychological response is anger. How could you do this to me? Why are you doing this to me? And perhaps there's people in this room that you've been hurt by your parents, you've been hurt by someone you trusted, you've been hurt by a family member, a friend, or perhaps even a church member, has hurt you deeply, and the natural response many times is is anger. This is a legitimate response when someone hurts you. I want us to go back to this verse. It's very fascinating. Now, Jesus has just been wounded by a man that thinks he's innocent. He has been hurt Physically, I would even say emotionally. I I don't know the psychological repercussions of going through that type of brutality. I, I just simply can't understand it. But look at the words of Jesus. He says, therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. In other words, he's looking into the eyes of a man that has just beat him within an inch of his life. And he says, look, I'm looking for grace. And I want to tell you this, someone has hurt me worse than you. In other words, you're not as accountable as somebody else. This is astounding to think about. Jesus is bleeding, his back is lacerated, he's looking to the eyes of a man that is just literally taking him to the very edge of death, and he looks at him and he says, look, I want to look for grace. I'm looking for mercy. It's as though someone has just slapped you and you look at them and you say, you know what? Uh, Someone has slapped me greater than you, so I'm holding them more accountable than what you've just done. This is a mind-boggling statement by Jesus. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. In other words, when when Pilate wounded Christ, his first impulse was mercy. 
When Pilate wounded Christ, he looks into the eyes of a man that has just done something to him. And he says, look, I'm looking for grace. And I'm going to absolve you as much as possible for what you've done. And I want to tell you, there's someone that's even more accountable than you. What kind of God does that? There's a lot of things I would have said. At the very least, he could have looked at Pilate and said, look, uh, there's going to come a day when you're going to... He could have said, why did you do that to me? He would have been justifiably angry, justifiably vindictive, but the impulse from the mouth of Christ was, I'm going to look for mercy. What kind of God does that? I think that perhaps there's people in this room that you've had a father or a mother that has given you an incorrect picture of God. Perhaps you've had a father or mother that's been very harsh and vindictive, angry. Perhaps you've been emotionally or even physically abused and, and you've gone through your whole life thinking that God is like that. And I want to tell you, he's not. Sometimes we think that when we mess up, God, his first visceral reaction is, I want to, vindication. But this is an extreme, raw situation where God is hurting and he looks into the eyes of the man that has just hurt him and he says, look, I'm looking for grace. I'm looking for mercy. What a picture of God. Some of you may have been hurt by a church member and you have a distorted picture of God. I want to tell you that God is mercy. It's in his DNA. It's his natural inclination. It's the thing that naturally comes out of him. And let's not be too hard on Pilate. In reality, the Bible says he was wounded for Pilate's transgressions. What does it say? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. Notice the language here. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes... We are healed. The reality is that every time you sin, you're hurting God. Every time we are unkind, unloving, impatient, vindictive, every time we are piercing the heart of the Son of God. And yet, this is the reality. When I wound Christ, his first impulse is mercy. Amen? We're doing this all the time. We're hurting the Son of God. I heard a dream of someone that was at the praetorium. It was this trial. They were in Pilate's palace. And Jesus was being flogged. And in the dream, the individual was crying out and saying, please stop, please stop this 
This is an innocent man. And, and in the dream, they were able to go and grab the arm of the Roman soldier and pull him back, and he looked into the eyes of himself. The reality is that every time we sin, we are piercing the heart of the Son of God. And friends, the most beautiful thing is that when we do this and we go back to him, there's not an ounce of vindication. He's looking to give you mercy. Amen? He's looking to give you mercy. With that type of heritage, we can be merciful as well. Amen? To him whom is given much, we can also give much. It's a supernatural thing and We'll be going through the next several weeks looking at the life of Christ. In his very final moments, you'll see a character of God displayed that will touch your heart. I pray that you would journey with me. And Today, I just want to make a very simple appeal. Perhaps you've had a distorted picture of God. Perhaps you've had a picture of God that is angry, out to get you. But I want to tell you that the face of Jesus Christ in Pilate's judgment hall is a face of mercy. And he's holding his arms out to you today and saying, I'm looking for grace. Won't you come? How many of you want to come today and say, Lord, I want to respond to a God like that? Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you're a God that has an inclination for mercy. That even in moments that we disappoint you, even in moments that we wound you and hurt you, that your first initial response is always to look for grace. We pray that you would help us to remember this that you would help us to etch this, this picture of God in our minds and recognize that it's never too late to go back. That even though we may have wounded you deeply, that when we come back, there is no animosity, there is no anger, that the first response out of your lips are words of mercy. Father, we pray that you'd help us to bestow this type of divine mercy to others, that to whom much is given, much can also be bestowed to others. Bless and keep us to that end. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.